Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Romans chapter 4 and 5. We're going to read the, the last three verses of Romans 4 and then the first two of Romans 5. All right, this is the word of God. Um, <clears throat> speaking of Abraham being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. This, the words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's pray and ask God for his help. Father, please this morning, will you look on us in love and in mercy that we may be given grace, abundant grace to speak, to listen, to understand, to believe, apply, and to be so happy in the great truth of having peace with you, not through our performance, but only through the faith and the great work of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, David Brennard was a missionary to Native Americans in the 18th century. He kept a diary and on one occasion wrote something which is profoundly perfect, exactly parallel to the biblical witness, a little lengthy, but again, profoundly, perfectly linked to what we've learned in Romans thus far and the verses which we have set before us this morning. And I want you to listen to what he writes. When I was about 20 years of age, I was busy more than ever in the duties of religion. I became strict and watchful over my thoughts, words, and actions, and thought I must be very seriously religious because I considered entering the ministry. I spent much time every day reading my Bible and praying. I gave great attention to Sunday sermons. In short, I had a very good outside and trusted entirely in my religious duties, though I was not then aware of what I was doing wrong. I often confessed to God that, of course, I deserve nothing, yet still I harbored a secret hope of recommending myself to God by all these duties and all this morality. When I prayed affectionately and felt some melting of my heart in love to Him, I hoped God would thereby be moved to care for me. So I thought through my repenting and my praising him and seeking him, I could make good steps. And when my heart seemed full of love and faith, I felt that God would be affected by that and would hear my prayers for their sincerity. In other words, I healed myself with my duties, wanting peace to be mine by them. I told myself, God must accept you because look at how wholeheartedly you serve him and seek him. Now here was the problem. The more I tried to love God with all my soul, the more I saw how little 
I really loved him. That's Romans 7, the latter part. The more I sought a soft heart, the more I felt how hard my heart was. And I suppose it must be softened before God would accept me. One night, I remembered in particular when I was walking alone, and I had such an open view of my sin that I feared the ground would split apart under my feet and become my grave. I saw it was impossible for me, after the utmost pains, to answer the demands of God's law. That's Romans 4, 14 and 15. I saw it condemn me for selfish and angry and fearful and envious and lustful thoughts, which I could not possibly prevent. Then, after a considerable time spent in such distresses, one morning I was alone, and I saw that all my contrivances and projects to effect or procure salvation was utterly in vain. I had thought many times that the difficulties were very, very great, but now I saw them in a different light, that it was totally impossible to do anything toward delivering myself. The war that had been in my mind now quieted. I saw that all my prayers and all my repentance and feelings and obedience had not laid the least obligation upon God to bestow his salvation on me, faith alone. Then I realized why they were of no avail. Now listen carefully. When I had been fasting and praying and obeying, I thought I was aiming at the glory of God but I was doing it all for my own glory to feel and to show I was worthy. As long as I was doing all this to earn my salvation, I was doing nothing for God, but all for me. I realized that all my struggling to become worthy was simply an exercise in self-worship. That's Colossians 2. I was avoiding God as Savior, wanting to be my own, not worshiping, but using God. Then, at that time, the true way of salvation opened to my mind. I saw its wisdom, its excellence, that I wondered how I was ever blind to it. I wondered why everyone did not see this way of salvation, not by my own contrivances, but entirely by the righteousness of Christ. I felt myself in a new world. It's just like Luther and Augustine would say, I felt myself born again. And everything about me appeared with a different aspect from before. Now that is a beautiful picture of an honest man, which many of us can relate to. A man who was very religious, very religious. A man who was good on the outside, but never had secure peace with God on the inside. Because, and listen carefully, because performance... Or obedience for righteousness cannot give us peace. Obedience for salvation, if you would, cannot give us peace. It's impossible. Now, there are a host of people who will preach and teach that performance and, you know, levels of earthbound blessing from God are all tied to your level of obedience with God. So if you want a good life, then you better be good. If you want a great life, then you better be great kind of theology. But not only is that irrational to life, and to the human condition, it's, it's blind to the message of the Bible. And therefore, although David Brandard was a religious jaggernaut, it meant nothing, and it did nothing. And the one thing, the one thing you th- would think that he would have enjoyed 
with all the praying and with all the fasting and the reading and the church going, you would have thought he would have had peace with God. But by his own admission, he didn't have it. So what does that tell you? And so just just humor me for a moment. Can you imagine if David Brenner, before his conversion, was attending a church which had a very loose and insufficient view of the gospel? So it was a church that like, was more on works than on grace. I mean, people might have looked at him like, wow, just look at David go. That guy, he's got it going on with Jesus. He's mature. He's jealous. He's all, or, or zealous. He's always praying. He's always fasting. He's always doing good works. He goes to every Bible study. He starts Bible studies. He's just something. And the whole time, he wasn't converted. Parents might have thought, you know, I wish our little Jimmy was more like David, but that the whole time David was not converted. Maybe wives to their husbands. Why can't you be more like David? You're like, I'm trying, babe, I'm trying. But David was not converted. Externally, wow. Inside, dead. No peace. Okay, why no peace? What does the Bible say? There is no peace, Isaiah 48.22, Isaiah 57.21. There is no peace for the wicked. Now, can't you hear the question? Okay, so are you saying that praying and fasting and Bible study and obeying was wicked? Yes, wicked if you're trying to earn salvation from God. Because the righteousness we needed only comes by faith in Christ. And David was humbled to realize That the only righteousness which could save him and give him peace was a righteousness alien to him, but comes by faith alone in Christ. So he was self-deceived. He had no peace with God. And the harder he tried, listen, the harder he tried, the more he failed. And so Brainerd was in one sense, like all of us can be, the worst of all Pharisees. His, His accomplished list of do's did nothing to quiet his conscience, and to lock God's objective truth into his very heart. And all his religious practices and all his religious duties to that same end, they did nothing. He was simply interpreting Christianity, relating to God, to himself. All through through what he was doing and what he was not doing, how he kept the rules, how he performed the rituals. Remember that line, I tried to heal myself with my duties. But in that, he remained sick and lost. However, the good news was was when he saw his hopeless position, he believed God, he believed the gospel. And remember what he said, not by my own contrivances, but entirely by the righteousness of Christ, I felt myself in a new world and everything about me appeared with a different aspect than before. Yeah, right. So his religious eyes, which were always locked on himself and what he was doing, finally the gaze turned upwards to Jesus Christ and what Christ had already done. So I want you to keep that in mind as we move through these verses this morning under three headings. Pretty simple. Past grace, present grace, future grace. All right? Past, present, future. First of all, then past grace. So if you look down in your Bibles, you will see the word in chapter 5, verse 1, it's actually the very first word, therefore. And that word is a signal. It's, it's a link word. It connects with what has been said to what is going to follow. If you were a lawyer, the word therefore is where you, you begin to make your pivot, make your curve. And you would make your case then to 
the jury with therefore. And since no conversation begins with the word therefore, it's impossible, right? You just don't walk up to a person and begin therefore because there's nothing before the there. And that means that word therefore is a very, very significant word. When we see it in the Bible, our instinct is to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? And we know the answer is, and listen carefully, it's a link to remind us to first look backward from the text before we actually look at the text. Again, you see, therefore, you know, you've got to look backwards before you actually look at the text. So it's like a hinge which holds the door together, telling us something new is happening, but it will only make sense in light of what has already been said. And what has been said was justification by faith in Christ is the only way. And now I want you to do this. I want you just for a moment, and just bear with me, I want you to appreciate the tenacity of Paul. He will not let go of justification by faith in Christ. He keeps insisting on it, and he's being backed up by God. Right? He's been backed up by the very one who is the author of the Bible. So if you just have a look down in your Bible in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 3. Chapter 4, verse 5. Chapter 4, verse 9. Chapter 4, verse 11. Verse 13. Verse 16. Verse 22. Verse 24. Verse 25. Chapter 5, verse 1. At least 10, ten times since we've been justified by faith in Christ. Since faith is credited to us as righteousness, the righteousness which comes by faith, since the righteous live by faith, he just won't let it go. I mean, I was thinking it's like a child at a store. I need a toy. Give me a toy. I give me a toy. Give me a toy. I just can't let it go. I need a toy. So, so my wife and daughter and I, we go for walks most nights. And one of my bad habits on the walks is at least, you know, four or five times I ask my wife for permission I say, honey, can I tell you what my schedule will be for tomorrow? I'm obsessive compulsive, so it's like medicine when I tell her. It's very soothing, right? So, so most nights she listens and she's like, you poor man. <laughs> you know, just, just let it out, let it out. But on bad nights, she's like, what is wrong with you, <laughs> right? What is wrong with you? Why can't you be more like David Brenner, right? But anyway, that's Paul. He will not let go of justification by faith. Because God won't let it go. And so what happens is he begins, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he begins to pour out to his readers something new needs to be known. And this new is some of the deepest truths of the gospel. And it speaks directly into the Christian experience, every Christian experience. In other words, these are benefits for every Christian guaranteed fully, equally to ever, every believer in Christ. But before he gets to the benefits, Paul establishes the fact that there is a therefore which has to be acknowledged. So the Puritans would say, you have to do the sin work before you do the grace work. I mean, they're, they're right. You can't just say problem solved until you know what the problem is. So, Paul in saying, therefore, in chapter 5, verse 1, tells us we need to consider again what was said before. He said, with no apology, let's just do that. Romans 1, he begins with the righteousness of God, contrasted with the sinfulness of humanity. Righteousness is central to Paul's argument. And in Romans 1, he explains that, that unrighteousness is a human race problem. 
in chapter 2, he explains that means it's also a Jewish problem. So yes, they were chosen, and yes, they were given the law, and yes, they had many, many benefits, but the law did not solve the problem because the law itself is a teacher to show the problem. So think of it this way. The law of God is like a giant theological CAT scan, which humanity is placed in, and our test comes back, and it's like, oh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry to tell you this, but yes, you are a sinner. Because the law teaches us we are sinners in need of saving. And so in chapter 2, he also deals with conscience and how how our conscience works like a self-governing law. And so we don't even keep our own laws. We make promises, we, we break promises, and our conscience condemns us, rightly so. Then in chapter 3, Paul just lays it out flat and says, all humanity, whether you're religious or you're not religious, everyone be quiet. No one can self-justify themselves before the bar of God's judgment because everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then Paul gives the great truth of our justification in chapter 3, verses 21 and following. And he tells us, listen, Christ was God's atoning sacrifice for sin. And by the public death of Jesus Christ, God was just, okay? He did what was right and sin was punished. So no one got away with anything. No one gets away with anything. And God was the justifier. He was just and the justifier. Christ took the punishment due so that we would not have to and we could be be granted forgiveness and we could be granted his righteousness, but only by faith. Then, in chapter 4, Paul says, look, this justification by faith isn't something new. It's actually very, very old. And he does this purposely because scholars tell us that some of the Jewish Christians in the church at Rome were giving Paul a little bit of pushback on justification. You know, it can't be this good, Paul. Uh, Jesus can't be that great. And so what Paul does is he takes them to the Bible, to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, to remind them that, hey, Abraham, way back then, Abraham was justified by faith. Chapter 4, verse 3, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And by the way, that's the very first time the verb believed was ever used in the Bible. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which Paul quotes in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, because it's central to what he's saying. And so to those in the church who said or were given the impression, look, you have to do something added to faith in Jesus to be right with God, to relate to God. You just have to. Paul writes to them and says, listen, that is not true. And he speaks to them about their their unity in the gospel because, because no church is safe which would tolerate a privileged class. So he says, look, you're all united. You're united in your sin. You're united in Christ's provision to deal with your sin. You're united in your salvation. You're united in your unity with Christ and all the benefits because he has given to you his righteousness. And then he climaxed that in chapter 4 with Abraham being both the Jewish and Gentile father in Christ. And that simply means that Abraham was justified by faith in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, right? When that happened, he wasn't Jewish. And he certainly wasn't personally righteous. It was when Abraham was called out of that pagan land, uncircumcised, a bloody mess, that he responded to God by faith. And at the basis of that, we're told Abraham believed God. Again, I apologize, Genesis 15, 6. Romans 4, 3, 
he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Paul says then, there you have it. There you have it. Abraham is the father of the Jews and the Gentiles, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. He is the model of saving faith. He's the model of saving faith. Then at the very end, which we read, verses 23, 4, and 5 of chapter 4, Paul very, very clearly says, this righteousness by faith is for everyone who believes in Christ. In other words, faith is how you become a Christian. Faith is how you remain a Christian. Faith in Christ. And thus he ends with a verse my wife and I asked our children to memorize when they were little. It's one of my favorites. It's Romans 4.25. He was delivered over to death for our sins, raised to life for our justification. And that simply means on the basis of the death of Jesus Christ alone, we are right. We are justified before God forever. And so that's our first point, past grace. Everything that we needed to rescue us from our rebellion, from sin's power, from sin's penalty, and one day sin's presence happened in the past, before we were born. And just so don't get used to that. Just get lost in the wonder of that. Before we came into existence, past grace was there, just just waiting for us. I read a tweet this week from a gentleman named Michael Reeves. In it, he wrote, if your theology puffs you up, you are doing it wrong. It should drive you to your knees in wonder and worship and thanks. And so you see, we needed every single word, every single thought, every phrase, every argument, every truth, all the repetition, all of it, before we get to chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, right? Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, since all of chapters 1 through 4 is true, it's almost like Paul is saying, okay, is everyone clear on this? Tell me you're clear. You got it, right? Are you clear? Are you clear? There's only one means of justification, and it is by faith in Christ. There is no justification by the law. There is no justification by works. There is no justification by ritual. There is no justification, not even by sight. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's number one, past grace. Second point, number two, present grace. So having gone backwards, he goes forwards into the actual Christian experience of justification, what it means, and he's speaking now directly to the Christian experience. If you like, these are the benefits of the gospel. And one of those benefits is just beautiful. It is peace with God. In other words, this benefit of peace with God is true for every Christian. And there are no levels of peace with God. There's no indication of that. You don't have to do something, give something, promise something as a Christian to have peace with God. So this is massive. I mean, everyone in the world wants peace. I mean, right now, right, everyone in the world needs peace. And they'll go after it in all kinds of ways. Here, peace with God is a gift. It is ultimate. This is the establishing of God's rule, family relationship, the perfect act of reconciliation which was planned by the Father, um, achieved by the Son, and, and applied by the Holy Spirit. And that means you have the whole of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, vested in this peace. However, 
you could very easily hear a person, whether they're Jewish or religious, saying to Paul, all right, Paul, you say that faith is all that's needed for salvation. I mean, that sounds nice, but are you sure it's enough? Are you sure that faith alone can secure the salvation permanently? Are you sure it will work? What about the future, right? Is faith really enough to escape God's judgment, but is it even sustainable in your life ahead, right? Will it keep me? So by nature, we want to self-justify, and the battle has been going on for a long, long time, you know, of who's really in and, and who's really out. Uh, uh, are you saved? Are you not saved? Can you lose your salvation? And on and on and on. Paul's reply, chapter 5, verse 1, pretty simple. Therefore, have you been justified by faith? The summation of all that was said previously, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in, written in the indicative, but I'll get to that in a second. Peace with God. Because here's the deal. If you look back in your Bible, chapter 4, all the way to chapter 5, verse 6, it says that God justifies the wicked, the spiritually dead. God justifies the powerless. God justifies the ungodly. So, so how is it that faith in Christ is unsustainable? It's not. Faith in Christ is very sustainable because it doesn't depend on you. It's rational, it's honest, and it's a person's only hope. And the benefits then of this present grace is we have peace. Present possession is the sense there. It's written in the indicative in Greek mean, means that this is true. This is indicative of every Christian. Just as sure as you have a head, the Christian has peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so for Paul, as a Jew, peace with God has this idea of shalom, right? And shalom has this sense, this beautiful sense of being joined together with God, and you share in the life of God. Think of it. I mean, really meditate on that. Sharing in the life of God, which includes his righteousness, so that God has entered into peace with us, and he's given us this shalom, this personal, spiritual well-being. That we are now friends with God. Promised fatherly care from God. And all his love and all these benefits encompass his peace. This week I was listening to um, Tanzanita Vega. She has a podcast on NPR. And she was talking to this mom who was dealing with the shelter-in-place order and its extension here in Minnesota. And the mother said, she said, before all this, I was so, I was so busy. But the pandemic forced me to stop and pause and just hold my daughter more than ever. For the first time in most of our histories as Christians, we just got to stop. There's not much we can do right now with this order. So, so we have to just sit here as Christians. And we have to be still. And we have to stop and enjoy this peace. Apply this peace. We can't perform, if you would, like we, we used to. But we can be still and know that God is God. Stop your striving. 
just be still. Just let, let God, if he would, hold you peacefully. Peace with God based on the performance of Christ. Faith in Christ. Listen to all these songs. Just one, one verse of many. Come gaze upon your Savior. Behold your great high priest. Draw near in awe and wonder. His cross has spoken peace. I hear the words of love. I gaze upon the blood. I see the mighty sacrifice and I have peace with God. What heights of love. What depths of peace. When fears are stilled. When striving cease. Or there's a peace I've come to know. Though my heart and my flesh may fail, there's an anchor for my soul. I can say it is well. Okay, how come? Here's the refrain. Jesus has overcome and the grave is overwhelmed. The victory is won. He is risen from the dead. So, so don't let yourself or the, you know, yeah, but religious people ruin that. I have a hymn for them. We make his love too narrow by false limits of our own and we magnify his, his strictness with a zeal he will not own. So sometimes in an effort to get people going, you know, get people going for Jesus, kind of stir them up, we may be tempted to threaten or condemn or tempt people with, with goodies from God, but you've got to do this, you've got to do this. Paul's like, no, no, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this peace is not just psychological tranquility. It's not just positive feelings. This peace is not feelings of well-being. This peace doesn't even rely on feelings, although feelings may very well come from this peace. Why wouldn't they? But sometimes they might not come. This peace with God is a gift from God, a present grace, a fixed byproduct for the Christian at their, at their conversion forever. And that means, again, you can't earn it. You can't conjure it up. You need not to try and work your way into it. You will not lose it. It is just given. It is indicative of every Christian. Listen to one of the commentaries I used this week. The peace of God is first and foremost peace with God. And peace with God, it is the state of affairs in which God, instead of being against us, is for us. No account of God's peace, which does not start here, can do anything other than mislead. It's true. This, is, this peace is not subjective depending on us. It's objective depending on the one who gave it. So we may even fight this peace and our sin as a Christian, but that is a battle we will never, ever win. Thank God we'll never win it. It's like when our kids get angry with us and, you know, and they're just lost in all their, uh, their angriness and they're so tiny. And you look at them and you say, hey, what's wrong? What's wrong? We're good. I love you. There's peace. And so the point is, Justification by faith in Jesus Christ establishes a new relationship between the believer and a holy God. The prior relationship was defined by the fact that, yeah, we were the enemies of God, right? At war with God. That's Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, okay? An enemy, 
with God. Every human being on this planet, apart from Jesus Christ, is an enemy of God, at war with God. But that is not the case for the Christian. We have been justified. And now all we know is peace with God. And if you want one application of this, just like one major application, here it is. Do not live life trying to achieve peace with God. Live it as it is. You have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a fundamental difference there. I'm going to say it again. Do not live life, your life, trying to achieve peace with God. Live as it is. You have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. One person said, it's like God extended his his scepter of love and he placed it on your head and he said, peace, peace, peace. So rejoice, so rejoice. And can we not appreciate how Paul here in this text won't let us stray from the fact that this peace is because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Just look at your Bible, please. Chapter 4, verse 25. This is the bookends, bookend to your left. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Then the middle, justified by faith, we have peace with God. And then the other bookend, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through our Master, through our Savior, through our Messiah. You understand that? Peace with God that you have is because of Jesus. John 3, 36, he who has a son has life. He who does not have the son has no life in him at all. Peace with God. But there's more. Look at verse 3. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Now that's not a throwaway verse. It's not a throwaway verse. Two key truths come out of this access. Benefits, if you would. We have access and we're standing in grace. And standing in grace is, is an unusual way to speak of. You, you really don't hear that very often. You don't hear a lot of people say standing in grace. But when Paul says standing in grace, he's speaking here of, of grace as a state, as a fixed position, a fixed reality. It's our meat and our drink. Grace is how we now and forever relate to God, relate to ourselves, and relate to others. Grace Grace, grace. And it's how God changed everything for us for all time, so much so that we're no longer standing in sin. We no longer stand condemned. Rather, we stand in grace always. That the Christian has been brought to a permanent place where grace operates fully and continually, even though sin still exists in our lives. It's beautiful, right? You say, well, how did we get there? Paul says it in verse 2, we gain access by faith, by Christ. So think, one minute we're under justifiable condemnation, then the very next moment we're under grace. How? How does a sinner become a saint? How is the dead person made alive? How is it one moment we're dead in our sins and trespasses, the next moment we're alive in Christ? One moment condemnation, the next imputed righteousness. One moment God's rejection, God's enemy, second moment to eternal acceptance in God's God's friend. How does that happen? Well, you know, I just amped up my Bible reading and I amped up my prayer to unprecedented levels. You should see me. 
No, no. Paul won't let you go there. Paul tells us we were brought. We were introduced by faith, through faith, through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's the Greek rendering there. By faith, through faith, through the Lord Jesus Christ. As faith and grace stand together, we are told, again, we gain access by faith through Christ into this grace that we now stand. So what Paul is saying is what people have said in the past. The gospel is so comprehensive. It's not just the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z to Christianity. So whenever we sin, grace operates on our behalf. Victory, grace operates on our behalf. Suffering endured, grace operates on our behalf. And so every gospel benefit in our life comes through Christ. Everything is because of him. That's the idea of standing in grace. And then the word access, which literally means ushered into the the presence of, of royalty, tells us this shift is real. There's a shift in our very state of existence. We have access to the throne of mercy to find help in our time of need. And you think about this this access. Why, Why is it so important that Paul says that? Well, all throughout history, Jewish history, the one thing that was true for the Jewish people is that there was no access to God. I mean, God was utterly unapproachable, holy one, and that was laid down in no uncertain terms. And even today, people will say, you know, in the name of Christianity, if you want to go deep with God and you want to get closer to God and you want to really, really, really know his presence in your life, then, you know, you're going to have to do this. You're going to have to give up that and on and on because someone determined that the Christian isn't close enough to God through Christ alone. And as if somehow the work of the cross is is insufficient. Now, say with me, even for the Jews of Paul's day, the structure of the, the temple had all these courtyards, and they had all these courtyards because no one could have access to God. So the Gentiles could only go so close to God, hence they had the court of the Gentiles. Women could only get so close to God, hence they had a place called the court of women. Men could get a little closer. Peace, priests, excuse me, could get a little closer with the proper cleansing and proper rituals. But anybody who got too close to God was in serious danger. You know, you remember the Old Testament? Uzzah got too close. He touched the ark. He was killed. Nadab and Abihu got too close. They were killed. Korah, Dathan got too close. And they were killed. And the high priest, who alone could go into the Holy of Holies, that that once a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and he could only go in after very serious ceremonial purification and They had to do all those things, right? They had to tie a bell on him and tie a rope on him. And there was the the curtain there, that thick curtain. And he would walk in. And if things got bad, then they could take the rope, you know, and drag him out, either dead or alive. Access to God was not a phrase in the vocabulary of the Jewish people. But, listen, Christian, access is the native tongue for the Christian. We, we stand in grace, full access to God, because one thing, this is God's work. This is God's act. So Paul will say in chapter 8 of Romans, this can't be taken away from you. Who can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ? 
Standing in grace, now listen carefully, is not a weak position. It is a strong position. And so when we speak about grace, we are not trying to be soft on ourselves or soft on our sin or soft with others. So we're not just trying to be, you know, like much nicer Christians. No, we are just trying to be Christian. We're just trying to be Christian. Listen to what one pastor wrote. If you want to attack grace, attack the security and peace with God of the believer, you are attacking, first of all, God. You're saying he changed his verdict. He changed his truth. He changed his promise. Secondly, you're attacking Christ. You're saying his, his cross and the work that he did was inadequate. His, his high priestly work cannot maintain us. And then you're attacking the Holy Spirit and saying he's inadequate to cause the believer to persevere. And you are discrediting the entire Trinity. And if you do that, your denial is, is all wrapped up and your thought of God giving no security and giving no peace with the believer. You see? It's God's strength, not our strength. It's not our strength which got us into grace. We were introduced, verse 2, through Christ. But now that we're here, this is a fixed, impregnable position. The Christian cannot get out of grace. It can't get out of this framework. Past grace, beautiful work of Jesus. Present grace, peace, access, firmness, security, standing in grace. Finally and briefly, future grace. And so this radical change God has brought leads us to verse 2b. Do you see it there? Rejoice, or some translations actually means boast. Boasting in the hope of the glory of God. And this is a future grace which we boast of now that is coming for the Christian. And the word glory there, and the reason why we know this, glory is in, written in the future tense, speaking to a glory which, which is yet to be, a glory which will be revealed in us. So this is speaking of that final future on last things, on God's absolute, supreme, perfect, final work in the future, which God will do, which will include, thank God, our glorification. That's why Paul says it there, you see, as we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, meaning the grace which is coming is the full completion of God's plan. And that grace which is coming, Paul says, that is our right now boast. Future grace is coming, but it's our right now boast. And that is to be, if you would, the animating, energizing, life-guiding reality for the Christian. The future grace we stand in ought to have, it ought to be on our mind's horizon all the time. The ultimate end of all things, which is God's glory, and when God fully accomplishes every one of his purpose, purposes in us, in the world, in the universe, in the heavens, everything made finally and absolutely perfect. And Paul says, looking to that, that's always on the horizon of the Christian. It's always in mind, always in our framework. We rejoice in the hope of the glory 
of God. Meaning, if we have that future hope, if our perspective is not only temporal, but eternal, then everything becomes transformed. Everything. We look at everything differently. We look at everything, if you would, through the eyes of grace. We look at God. We look at people. We look at the church. We look at our jobs. We look at our money. We look at the loss. We look at our life. We look at all of our ambitions. We look at time, our children, our lot in life. All of it. All of it now through the lens of grace. David Brenner, who I quoted one from in the beginning, he says, I love to live on the brink of eternity. Right? Because future grace that's coming means everything becomes transformed. Everything becomes transformed, which means so much. But the one thing that it means for us is that you don't have to get everything out of this life. Just remember that. You don't have to get everything out of this life. That can be very, very liberating for people. Future grace is coming. How is it possible that you will one day stand in the presence of God blameless? Because you live in the sphere of grace. And in the sphere of grace, sin is constantly being forgiven, constantly being covered. It never accumulates. And that is why the relationship can never be breached, violated, altered, or ended. Peace, access, standing in grace, righteousness, security, future, hope. All of it grace. And all of it through faith in Jesus Christ. Which begs the question, doesn't it? It's an honest question. It's an important question. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Not have you done X or Y or Z. But pretty simple. Have you placed your faith in the only one who can save you? Offer you peace with God. Access. Standing in grace. And a future hope. A future hope that tells you you don't have to get everything out of this life. Not to worry. Thank you for your attention this morning. Let's pray. Father, Will you, will you please build your church with these truths that were set before us this morning? Let no one listening be without your peace. For Jesus' sake. And now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and remain on all who believe both now and forevermore. Amen.